And welcome to the Darren Woodson Show. Thank you for joining us this week. Uh, we're going to jump right into it. We're really excited about our guest and and none more than Ben. Ben is super excited oh, about yeah. this. It's about time we talked about something that actually means something. That's right. So so for those of you that, that have listened to the show, Ben has been a trainer for, for many years, got into real estate a couple of years ago, um, but there was still a gap. There was a hole in him that he just, he had to get into training. So he does, he does like some personal training with, with people with our company and, and some friends and family. Me. Um, and Darren. so, and yes. So if you don't like Darren. the way he looks, I don't train him anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Just so we're clear, but, but, you know, to speak to that, um, Ben's entire training regimen comes from the man that we're about to talk to <laughs> who stole so, your stuff. You know, ben, is well, actually, well, ben is actually a, a, uh, certified Googler, not yeah. a certified personal trainer. Cause he yeah. just, I'm, just I'm a professional researcher No, I'm, and I pass on <laughs> nothing original. No, I'm just, no, but seriously, what Tyler's saying, honestly, when I get, when I first got into training, Gosh, was that 2014 is when I first discovered you and, and what you're doing. And we spoke to Dr. Lane Norton on a previous episode. Yeah. And what I appreciate about both of you guys is because the fitness industry, everybody knows it's the wild, wild west. Full of just yeah. And there's yeah. just so much BS out there. And what I appreciate about you guys is you cut the bull crap and you, and you, and you spread the truth. It may not be sexy. It may not be what people want to hear, but it's the truth and it, and it gets the best results. So, that's what draws me to you. That's why we're excited to have you on. Who is you? Yeah. We haven't oh, even brought true. in Eric that's Cressy. That's true. Eric we Cressy. have not brought in Eric Cressy. And Eric, uh, again, you know, we're going to get into the meat of, of what, you're do, what you do today and how impressive yeah. uh, the work is that you do. But we want to go back and we want to talk about the journey and the reason why you got into this. But mm -hmm. let's start going to your childhood. You know, where are you from, yeah. Eric? Yeah, I'm from Kennebunk, Maine, basically Southern Maine. It's it's not quite the middle of nowhere, but it's about an hour from there. Kennebunk, okay. Maine. That's Never nowhere. Heard of it. That is nowhere. That Our is. Claim to fame. We were the summer White House when um, when George H. W. Bush was in was in office. So oh, we had wow. president around in the summertime a little. Hey, bit. well, if if it's good enough for a Texan, right? It's good enough for everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I spent a lot of time in the Northeast at ESPN yeah. at, in Connecticut. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the folks that were, had moved into that area were from Maine and they talked about how yeah. beautiful it was and they do, you know, they vacationed up in that area. I never mm -hmm. had the opportunity to go up there, but, but give us a little more. Did you have a, you know, you grew up with your mother, father in your life yeah. or was it, you know, talk yeah, to, I, talk us through that. I was, I was lucky. I, I came from, you know, a parent, a family with two parents for sure. And an older brother, four years ahead of me kind of, I guess, paved the way for us. You know, what was, what was really good is I actually, just from watching my parents. Um, so I had a mom who was a teacher. She taught uh, English in the ninth grade um, and actually eventually became the principal of my old high school and, and just retired this year. My dad was a school bus distributor. So he and my grandfather, um, they founded a, a, a bus distributorship. So they would basically sell bus to school districts and, you know, kind of cover the Northeast territory for, for Thomas built buses. So I got to see a, you know, the ultimate giver in a mm -hmm. teacher. And then I got to see an entrepreneur. So you mm. got to see the the people who are woefully underpaid for what they did. Um, you know, I saw her correcting papers in bed every night before I went to bed. And, you know, I saw the nights where my dad would get up at 3 a.m. and go write bids, you know, to school districts to, to make sure we could support our family. So I, you know, I got like a very good, like, you know, hardworking, you know, um, I guess mentorship from my parents on top of what they did for me just as parents. And I think it sustained me a lot with respect to how I approached my own career. Mm. Was it, was it something that they would, you know, things they would talk about with you growing up or was it more through action that you learned? 
You know, I think it's action. I think you watch how people treat others. Um, like I can distinctly remember. Um, so what I would do when I was a kid is I would actually get up early. And I, would, I would usually go to school with my mom in the morning. She'd be there at, you know, 645 or whatever it was. So, you know, I grew up kind of like hanging out with high school students in her room and they'd come in before school for extra help or whatever. And then I'd, I'd go out front and me and several other kids who had uh, parents who were teachers there would get on the bus together. But I, I never in the, I guess back then realized it, but my mom would always have snacks in her desk and I, it never made sense to me because she didn't eat them and stuff like that. Turns out she was feeding kids breakfast who didn't oh, have food. No, no, no yeah. Like, and, and you, you never quite put it together. I think at that age when, you know, you go to the grocery store and it takes three hours because there are so many parents that are, you know, stopping to thank her in the aisles and mm. stuff like that. But it's, it, it's cool. I mean, she went back to teaching when I was in kindergarten and, um, you know, the, the legacy she's built in our hometown is, is really, really neat. Even in retirement, you get to kind of reflect back on it. But, you know, I think it, it's it's served us well. And I think, you know, a lot of our business has just been focused on, like, how do you how do you give more than you take? You know, how do you, mm. you try to do the right thing regardless of the circumstance? And that's something I think she, she always did, and I really respect it a lot. So it rubbed off on me. That's awesome. Now, uh, any siblings? Yeah, I have a brother who's, who's four years older than me. Okay. Um, he's actually a certified public accountant. And, All right. Uh, he, he runs the family business now. He's in, in kind of the school bus world. But um, the, the funny story about Brian is, is so he was the first one to ever take me in a weight room. So I'll never forget. Huh. He's a senior in high school and I'm in eighth grade. I'm, uh, let's just say my nickname at eighth grade basketball camp was the round mound of rebound. I was, <laughs> You're I was a big not, kid. You were a big kid, huh? Yeah, I was not a stellar physique. I, I shopped in the Husky <laughs> section. I wore elastic jeans. But um, if Sounds you like me. think of it. So I got, when I had hair, it's, it's really like, it's, it's like a Brillo pad. It's bristly, it's wire, it's curly. So in eighth grade, my favorite like athlete growing up was Carlos Valderrama, the, the center midfielder for the Colombian national team. Oh, yeah. 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 The big fro. Great. Yeah. Crazy flowing locks. And it was, you know, 94 world cup was in America. So that was when I was in like eighth grade. So it was, it was, it was a cool time to be a soccer fan. So I grew my hair out so that my brother's friends would all call me little fro. I had an afro. <laughs> so basically you can imagine this four foot 11 kid who's never lifted weights. I looked like Seth from super bad. If you look around on the internet, you can find some pictures of it, but Brian took me into the weight room and sure enough, I went in there. I got pinned under the 45 pound barbell, you know, squirmed until they took it off me. And you know, that was probably 94, 95. And here we are, you know, 26 years later and I got a world record in the deadlift and he's a 140 pound accountant and I never let him live it. Now. <laughs> <laughs> did that open the door? I mean, that moment, did that moment open the door for you or did you shy away yeah. from the weight room uh, after no, that short I, failure? I, I wish it had, you know, uh -huh. like, I think that could have been like that. Holy crap. I'm not nearly where I need to be. And I was too young to appreciate. I mean, I was, I was a multi-sport athlete and stuff. And, and to be honest, it, what, what really opened the door for me, I, I didn't really get my act together with respect to like understanding what I, I think I could be athletically until my junior to senior high school. I was, I was, you know, a lot of people, you know, our industry talk about like, if I only had my knowledge, you know, 20 years yeah. ago, I would have been a division one athlete and a professional. I would have been a fantastically mediocre, like division two athlete with, yeah. with good training. Like I, I wasn't, you know, crazy upside, but as I was getting recruited to play both uh, tennis and soccer in college, it was a lot of like division three interest. And I, I had good ball skills on the soccer field. I, I had good hands. I was a good tennis player. Um, like when all state my senior and everything, but mm. um, the knock on me was always that I wasn't fast. You know, I, mm. I had better technical skills than I did athleticism. So my senior in high school after soccer season ended, I, you know, I kind of just flipped the switch and decided I'm going to, I'm going to clean this up. I'm going to start taking care of myself and 
started trying to eat better with what I knew. I mean, this is 1998 at the time. Um, and actually, believe it or not, the, the pendulum kind of swung really far in the opposite direction. I wound up with kind of an exercise addiction, eating disorder. Um, I lost 80 pounds my senior year of high school. Oh. I, I didn't have 80 to lose. I probably had more like 25 to 30 to lose. Yeah. Um, and actually made myself pretty sick and it, it kind of ruined my opportunity to, to play college sports and had a couple hospitalizations, um, you know, during like kind of my summer before my freshman year of college and during my freshman year and um, really struggled to find, you know, what it was I needed to do to get better. Um, Cause I think you, anytime you see somebody in that dynamic, you kind of get lumped in the obsessive compulsive disorder, right? Mm-hmm. You, you find control in your life wherever you can. And um, you know, I, was, I was a smart kid. I was salutatorian in my high school. Like I, you know, I got into some good schools, but you know, this was something I, I really couldn't shake. Um, and I, I don't fault my parents for it at all. Like they didn't have nutrition know how, you know, that was back in like the food guide pyramid and mm-hmm. you know, the zone diet was just mm-hmm. becoming a thing. And um, so really I didn't, I didn't get myself sorted out until I actually, my neighbor introduced me, um, to a competitive bodybuilder in my hometown who had opened a gym. And I, I walked in and, um, you know, it was the first guy I ever, I ever met who in that context had answers for me. I had, I had a lot of questions and everyone else was so focused on trying to throw a, a diagnosis on me or a label, um, you know, all that stuff. It just wasn't the right mix. And he was a guy who, who empowered me. You know, he gave me knowledge. Um, he actually gave me my first opportunity. I, I worked the front desk at the gym every Saturday morning when I was home from school um, you know, it was, it was one of those things where it wasn't like he was just delegating tasks to me. Like it wasn't just vacuum the gym. It was like, he was educating me. And at the same time, giving me a chance to gradually be successful and, you know, get some points on the board respect to my, not just my career, but also my health. Um, and so over the course of time, I, you know, I kind of got my body weight back to where I needed to be and, and started getting healthy. And at the time I was actually at Babson college thinking I was going to be an accountant. And I, I realized I was much more passionate about, counting plates on the bar than I was counting beans for, for tax returns. Um, and so after my sophomore year, I transferred to the university of new England and I did a double major in exercise science and sports management. And, um, I was closer to home. So it allowed me to volunteer at that same gym. I, I commuted from home my last year of school and, um, it just, it was, it was a perfect fit for me. And I, I, I always come back to like, we're so quick, you know, medically in the, in the world to try to throw diagnoses on people that mm-hmm. it's kind of that old patch Adams quote from Robin Williams, where, you know, if you, if you treat the patient, you fail a lot. If you, if you treat the person, you win every time. Yeah. I look back and, you know, I found the right mix. I was lucky to where a lot of people don't, they struggle with it for much longer than I did. So, okay. So I, I want to go back to that senior year. What do you yeah. think the catalyst was for you to really, take that turn maybe down the, the wrong path and, and you started yeah. to see success and weight loss. And then what, what made it exponentially more addictive to you and continuing to do that? What, what do you think those triggers yeah. were? Um, you know, the first thing I'll say is I, I absolutely believe that there is a genetic predisposition to this. There's, there's some okay. research that shows it. And, and certainly, you know, talking to my mom, my brother, like, you know, there, there have been other people in our family who have gone through stuff like this. I obviously was the most extreme. I mean, I, w- I weighed 97 and a half pounds in a hospital bed oh, at age 18 wow, at one man. point. So, you know, I, it was kind of like one of those things where a sinus infection almost killed me. But, um, you know, I, I think for me, a, a big part of it was, you know, you, you do whatever you can to find control in your life when you kind of have that kind of type A personality. And, you know, you see, you know, people who go through eating disorders, maybe there are folks who, you know, were overcoming alcoholism or they had abusive relationships or whatever it was. And I never viewed myself like that. I always viewed myself as a really bright athlete who couldn't find um, the answers that I wanted, that I didn't feel like they were out there no matter how hard I looked. Because you you think about it, like I, I went to college in 99. I didn't send my first email until my freshman year of college. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is 95 to 99. Like you couldn't just go online and, and do what we kind of just talked about. Like you right. couldn't, like in, in 2014, like 
the world is your market. Like you can go find a book from Tim Grover who trained Michael Jordan, right? You can go and you can hit up a seminar that you learned about on the internet that's 15 states away because you think there's something you can help you. In 95 to 99, you, you basically had muscle and fitness and then keep your fingers crossed that it'll work for you. And, um, you know, that for me, it didn't work. Um, so I, I needed to find someone who was a really, really good mentor. And it's something that I think I've always kept in the back of my mind is that, you know, you can put stuff on a piece of paper, you can write blogs, all that stuff. But some people really do need that, that person, you know, in person who can actually kind of help to, you know, to show them the way. You, know, you, you just mentioned something and it went right over their heads. Yeah. Muscle fitness <laughs> and 1995. They, these yeah. two, were you even you were these two were barely born they had phones trust me you you remember the era eric when we didn't have phones remember mm-hmm. yeah these no, no, two no. they had phones at nine eight no, nine years old not until i was a junior in high school easy no that's the truth easy. man so they don't know what they get everything they've ever wanted it's been right there yeah. google just google I, it you know they don't remember the era we had it was a big deal so i shared my mom's ford taurus station wagon and the thing when i got my license like the second you hit 65 miles an hour the dashboard started shaking <laughs> so it was like it, i feel like my parents put it in there to make sure they, they wait a minute they didn't have panels on the side did you yeah it, no it didn't thank god oh, thank god <laughs> not, not, not that i had a whole lot of game but um you know that's really what it taken even down another notch but i distinctly remember getting in that car and like if we went to like an away soccer game or something to like watch friends play if it was like four or five times away you took the the mobile phone in the bag yep. that you could plug into the yeah. cigarette yeah like, yeah you know, like hey these these this is a, an 18 dollar phone call if you make a call. yeah, so only yeah. Use it for emergency. Emergency. <laughs> hey, yeah no was, come on man i grew up with an el camino that's what my dad drove yeah, early on yeah. so I, I drove had, a yeah. minivan and as a junior in high school to you school. still drive a i minivan. drove a minivan yeah, yeah. yeah. so i don't want to hear this see i get the struggle though i feel the struggle that eric went through because you didn't have those resources that you could just yeah. go online. So you had to go through this learning process of actually yeah. getting in your car, driving somewhere to learn something. Yeah, Eric, Eric, he's about to say that he used to drive to the library and do research at the library. That's, I, that's how I got all my information. <laughs> no way. <laughs> Darren, what year were you born? Uh, 69. Lion. Okay, you got, you, you, <laughs> I'm the first year of the millennials. So, oh, you're a millennial. Yeah, come I on. Not, I, don't, I don't identify as a millennial, but technically, I think they're supposed they're saying that we're supposed to be called like something else. Yeah. Like yeah. Xennial or something like that. But I certainly don't identify. That as millennial that. scale has moved so much. Yeah, I look at is. one. It's yeah. like, hey, if you're born in 82 or after yeah. I was born in 84. And it's like, yeah. I, I try to not claim millennials if I can. But like, oh, there's, there's no way around it. But I agree. I feel like that that like 78 to, to 86 that needs to be its own yeah. little little, own little it's generation the, it's the crew that can identify like a pearl jam or a sound yep. when it comes on the radio that's like, right it's embarrassing how many how few kids don't even recognize <laughs> pearl who <laughs> just kidding. Hey, something you were talking about earlier not to take this back down to the dark path but is is body dysmorphia and and yeah. how you view yourself uh yeah i'm gonna be honest i've never admitted this to anybody this is literally the first time i'm admitting this that's something i struggle with it's something i still struggle with today honestly you guys may not believe this or not but Mm. i still today take my shirt off and think twice about it still to this day because it's such a mental battle if you work because i was the same as you eighth grade ninth grade tenth grade very overweight not in the best shape didn't didn't take training seriously so my mind is still still in that mode 
to this day at 32 years old. And so yeah. it's very, it's a very powerful thing if you let it run away with you. Now I've yeah. gotten better, obviously, I'm, I'm, yeah. and more confident, but it still is in the back of my mind of still being that kid. Yeah. And the thing I'll tell you is that it's not uncommon. Um, I actually know, I mean, Brett Bartholomew, Adam Bornstein, these are guys who are, are really prominent mm. in the fitness industry who are good friends of mine that, that have gone through some of the same stuff. I mean, I know Brett's, you know, wrote in his book about his hospitalization. He works with a, a bunch of NFL guys. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's one of those things that I think it does draw a lot of people to our industry. It probably gives us some, some good perspective in, in hindsight. You know, one of the things that I think is it, it was certainly helpful for me that I think a lot of people never get to you is when, when you just focus on, on, on how you look physically, it's a very outcome driven model. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, you know, obviously we've got a guy who played professionally, like all that mattered was the process to get ready for Sunday, right? You yeah. didn't have time to think about how many abs were showing. Yeah. And yeah. I think when you're all driven by this outcome oriented thing that you, you lose sight of like how much fun you could actually have, you know, chasing whatever dream it is you have for. So for me, honestly, one of the things that, you know, I, I got headed in the right direction. And, you know, initially it was more about like healthy behaviors. And I realized, you know, eating right made me feel good. And, you know, it allowed me to do so many more things and, you know, enjoy the relationships I had in my life and things like that. But when I got into powerlifting, it, it was life-changing for me. Cause I, mm-hmm. you know, I was a guy that was a, you know, competitive athlete in high school and then kind of struggled to find the right mix. And it was probably like three or four years in there where I was, I was dealing with some of that stuff. And the second I started like focusing a lot more on like a, a competitive environment, it definitely made a big difference for me. And, and, and I was fortunate to have some success in it. And, you know, what was also good about it is that that environment just, it, it's, it's so, um, it's so nurturing. It sounds weird to say that, you know, a bunch of 350 pound men who squat a thousand pounds are nurturing, but <laughs> they're, you know, you go to powerlifting meets and you, you see people who are cheering for like a 78 year old woman who's trying to squat a hundred pounds. You see a, you know, a, a special Olympics kid who's competing and everybody's pulling for him. It's a, it's a really cool environment. Um, and, and I always found that that was the case regardless of who he was. I, I became good friends with a lot of guys who were double my body weight and um, was fortunate to lift at, you know, a really good powerlifting gym in Southside gym, you know, kind of after I finished grad school. And, um, you know, I always, I always look back if, if I hadn't shifted from an outcome driven perspective to mm-hmm. a, to a process driven perspective, I don't know that I would have gotten where I am with my career or, or even my, my personality, you know? Yeah. Eric, I want to, I want to keep going with your journey, but, but uh, yep. another quick thing, what you just said is, is I totally get it. And I think we all get it mm-hmm. is when I, when we were playing, it was very easy. And I loved working out, right? When there was that goal to be prepared and Hey, now it's less about, okay, what the numbers are, but when it translates to the field on Sunday, I know that I'm going to be better than my competition or, you know, I'm going to have an opportunity to win. And that was really easy. And when I was playing, it was really easy to say, Hey, when I'm done, man, I can't wait to just enjoy fitness for what it is. And (laughs) I don't have to do all these heavy back squats and, you know, all these things that just make my body hurt. Well, I get there And it is really hard because now the only goal is physical appearance and that's it because the mind shifts because that, that end goal of performance is no longer really there. So a question for you is, is I know you work with a ton of athletes, you know, in all levels, you know, you know, uh, youth athletes all the way to Olympic and professional athletes. But how do you, if you're talking to someone that's a CPA or, you know, uh, you know, works, works in retail, whatever it is, how do you, what would you say to them as far as, okay, from a motivation standpoint, it can't just be about physical looks. How, what do you say to them to get them motivated? Like you found powerlifting to say, Hey, that's, that's a goal that I can work for. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer. So Chip and Dan Heath are some some really bright guys. They're both psychologists. One's at Duke and one's at Stanford. They're brothers. They've written some great books. And and one of the things that they talk about is is basically how to make change easier. And, you know, I, I think this this is somewhat doom and gloom, but more importantly, I think there's a solution. I don't think we change people nearly as much as we think we do. I think we change the situations in which people operate. And that's far more profound, right? You see, you see people who, who get out of bad relationships and all of a sudden they, they look like they're happy for the first time ever. You see the number of, I mean, how many athletes do you know who have kids and all of a sudden their perspective changes? They become better athletes yeah. yes, um, because it allows them to take their mind off and when they have a bad game, they, they have an escape. Mm-hmm. So I think you change the situation. And what we've always tried to do with our facilities is we want to be that third place, right? There's home, there's work or school, and then there's the additional place that you go. And I think, you know, People, you know, will criticize CrossFit at times, but I think they've done this tremendously well. Mm-hmm. You know, they've, they've peaked motivation because they have become that community um, that third place. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's what it is. You're, if you just promise dumbbells and barbells, you're, you're going to eventually, it gets old. Like, yeah. like I, 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 I don't feel like lifting sometimes. Right. And it's something I'm good at, mm-hmm. you know, like <laughs> it should be something that, you know, I love to do over and over again, but you know, just like everybody else, like sometimes I get excited when I go on the road and there's a bunch of like random equipment at some hotel gym or, you know, a commercial gym down the street from where I'm staying and go in and try it out. Um, cause I, I do think we crave novelty. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we have to give that to people, whether it's in the actual programming, the exercises they do, or in the experiences they have with the people that they care about around them. And that's where you, I think the goal is to, to build community. It's why people, you know, exercise success is substantially higher when people have partners to work out with. It's why you see packs of cyclists out there on Saturday morning, you know, climbing hills together. Yeah. And, you know, why you see running clubs and, you know, rowing clubs mm-hmm. and places where there are rivers, like all that stuff. So I, I think it's more about changing the situation and putting people in places where they actually enjoy being before they actually even have to think about exercise. Yeah, we talk about the accountability aspect of it, right? Uh, if, yeah. if you don't have an accountability partner or community to help you with that, it's really easy to, you know, internally just say, eh, not going to go today. Yeah. But if you have that, the accountability aspect of it, I mean, that is it's super powerful. Yeah, one of well, those what, sports too. Like you think about it. I mean, you've been in clubhouses when there are a couple of bad apples. Yeah. It's not, it's not fun to go in and, and practice or train or anything like that. You you kind of have to keep the, the the unconditional positivity or at least the lack of negativity, I should say, yeah. um, you know, <laughs> in the right place to make that a fun environment to get your work in. You know, I want to, we, I know we, we're going to get to that point because I know you work with so many, you know, professional athletes as well. And, and, and as you know, the egos are in those locker or in those yep. spaces. And we're, we're going to get there. But I want to go back to yeah. the University of New England. So you, yeah. you're in school. When is what is the transition? What is you because you're, you're powerlifting uh, yep. and now you're in college. What is your mindset going forth? Yeah. You know, to be honest, when I transferred, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do in this realm. I knew I was I was at least passionate about it. Um, where UNE was really good for me is it's actually the only med school in Maine. So going into that department, we actually had access to gross anatomy classes. So they'd work with pre, pre-med majors and physical therapists and occupational therapists and athletic trainers. So we'd have access to cadaver lab and stuff like that. And that was when I really realized I was, I was intrigued by anatomy, how the body moved. You know, I think most people go into gross anatomy class and they're just trying not to get sick from yeah. the aldehyde <laughs> or they're grossed out by, you know, whatever it is they see. And I was in, I was in cadaver heaven as weird as that sounds. Um, and what it, what happened after that was I actually went to the university of new England, or excuse me, the university of Connecticut for grad degree. Um, and when I went to UConn, I didn't know whether I wanted to go into research, whether I wanted to get into like clinical exercise, physiology, something like that. And 
one of my first weeks on campus, it was right after I just started writing. It was 2003, had a couple of articles published and um, a guy named Brajesh Patel. He's now the, the head strength edition coach at Quinnipiac. Brajesh was a grad assistant strength coach there. And we had a couple of grad classes together and he came up to me. He was like, Hey man, I've, I've read some of your articles. I really enjoy them. If you ever want to come hang out in the weight room, let me know. I was like, I'd love to. He goes, I have baseball at 5 30 AM tomorrow morning. Mm. And it was almost like he was testing me. Like, Are you, is this guy serious? And I showed up and I was telling him, man, I'm like, in, in that moment, you changed my career. Like I watched how he controlled a room. It was him with 25 guys. And, um, just the way that he was able to succinctly get them to move the way he wanted to, the way he commanded a room, um, the way they respected him, um, the energy he did it. And he did it at the crack of dawn with a bunch of guys that didn't want to be out of bed that mm-hmm. early. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, I'm like, I, I could see myself doing this for the next you know 40 years. Um, and so I was fortunate at UConn to kind of start doing more volunteer stuff. I had my, my grad assistantship actually funded through research. So while I was at UConn, I got to spend a ton of time with especially men's and women's basketball and soccer, um, which at UConn, I mean, we were lottery picks after lottery picks and national championships and number one teams in the country. So it was, it was a really cool environment. I had some, some really good mentors there as well who took me under their wing. I, I want to talk about um, college strength coaches, right? And the differences between, cause you've, you've probably been around a ton of these guys. What yeah. makes it, what makes a good one? And then what makes, cause I've <laughs> I had I had one at Fresno State and, and oh, you did go put somebody I'll, I'll put, on blast. I'll put, I'll put him on put blast. Somebody Say on his blast. name. Hey, put his name put in your mouth. Yeah, Rich, Rich Tucker. Um, so so this guy <laughs> this guy was there my first uh, three years and I I kid you not our strength training program was based off of. Arnold Schwarzenegger's modern bodybuilding <laughs> encyclopedia. I swear on my life. And look, and the only reason I knew that is because in high school, that was, you that Googled was Arnold Schwarzenegger no, workouts. Was, no, there was no Google. The, the Google didn't exist, but that was like, I love that book. Right. Because all I, as a, as a senior in high school, like my only goal was like to have abs and, and arms. Like that was it. Right. And Arnold yeah. gave me those things. Right. But when now I'm pref- trying to train for a division one football team, and everything is pulling his life, squat deep, oh, right? Yeah. That's the Incline only thing. Press. And like you ask like what the physiology and, and what the reasoning for doing what we're doing is. And, and he goes up to the, up to the bookshelf and, and he's knock kneed. He can't even squat and he, he pulls it down and, and he starts flipping through it to get his, I'm like, what? So that roundabout story as far as, but what are you seeing like in the collegiate level? Like what, what are the, the really good strength coaches doing? Because training has evolved in the last decade and especially the last two decades. Yeah. I think the first thing I would say is it's gotten way more specialized just in the past five to 10 years, you know, like, and I saw it in particular, um, you know, in the baseball world. Now we have, you know, we have guys that are baseball only strength coaches and that, Mm -hmm. that never would have happened before. You know, a lot of times, you know, one strength coach would be carrying six to seven teams by themselves. Like you have smaller division one programs where it's, you know, one strength coach still covering 20 teams. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I feel for those, you know, those, those coaches, it's really hard to, to individualize at the highest level, but we are seeing like lots of really good steps forward. And where it's been cool, we've had a lot of former interns who are, you know, who are out there doing their things. Like, you know, Brett Price is one of our guys who was, uh, is at Alabama now seeing what Brett's done mm-hmm. and we've run our baseball mentorships and, you know, kind of taking a lot of those coaches under our wing from afar. So it is, you know, kind of cool to see it changing. But I think it's, it's across the board. I mean, that's hockey, you know, certainly football, you know, the, the compensation has risen dramatically for strength coaches. So we've gotten a, a greater level of specialization there. So it's, it's definitely better than it was, um, you know, probably even just, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, but I, I feel like that's the natural progression an industry should take. Like I look at the programs I wrote in 2005 and 
God, it makes me sick to my stomach. <laughs> I, I should be going back and finding people and giving their money back. Um, so I, I think that's, you know, if you don't go back in time and look at what you did, you know, five, 10, 15 years ago and do a face palm, then you're probably not growing as a coach. You're probably having, you know, 25 years of the same year of experience mm-hmm. as opposed to 25 years of actual experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so let's go. So your transition, I mean, you, why baseball? Why is baseball yeah. the field that you, gra- you know, went towards I mean because you have football you have the football programs you got you know basketball whatnot what was it about the baseball players yeah so I I think there's a there's an old saying you know like if you want to build a business solve a problem and I Mm -hmm. think for us so when I first left uh, grad school and and moved up to the Boston area and and started out on my own some of the first guys I started working with were baseball players which was to be honest it was somewhat new to me because I'd been much more basketball soccer um, at UConn and it just so happened some of those first guys that first offseason were baseball guys you know and and just in talking with them learning what they had done in the past and all that um, you realize it's a pretty underserved population you know either they're handed the you know clean squat bench football program Mm -hmm. or they're told just do some band stuff you know, do kind of the foo-foo rotator cuff exercise. You don't need to lift, just do some wrist curls and you'll be fine. And, you know, you realize pretty quickly that there's a happy medium between those two things. You can, you can push those guys incredibly hard. um, You know, as long as you're cognizant of some of the, you know, the the structural deviations from normalcy they may have when you look at their MRIs, you look at their asymmetrical presentations, you know, and the functional demands of the sport. And I had kind of a little bit of a leg up in that. I'd I'd had a bum shoulder from my tennis career and they kind of learned how to work around it and avoided surgery. So I I had a, a pretty good idea of how to manage the, the overhead throwing shoulder and, and, you know, I, I realized that we had some success with these guys and I was passionate about it. So I kept, you know, just trying to continue to build some career capital in that space, researched a lot, talked to the right people. And it just so happened that that first off season was 06, 07. Um, basically, one of those four kids won state player of the year. He went like 12 and 0 on the mound. They won a state championship. Um, all four of those kids went to play college baseball and my phone started ringing off the hook. And um, all of a sudden this, this baseball niche was born as these high school kids became college guys, college guys became pro guys, you know, and they had teammates they'd refer, you know, some of that agents that would refer players. Um, you know, here we are now we've got guys in all 30 organizations and it really just happened because we tried to take care of this one population that I think was dramatically underserved. So what was that dynamic like when you're having to deal with individual players and the school or, or whatnot is, you know, trying to protect those players as well. I know you had to walk yeah. a, a tight rope in that, in those yeah. conversations. Yeah. You know, it was, it was definitely an issue, you know, from, you know, Oh seven, probably to 13, especially when we weren't as well known, um, you know, back then we were probably better known locally than we were nationally or internationally. And now it's actually probably the opposite. Like if you look at the caller ideas in the business, you know, there's more calls from Indiana to Massachusetts or Florida than there are, you know, from Florida to Florida or something like that. So, um, you know what I think it always comes back to is, is just treat people right. You know, nurture relationships, um, you know, try to be humble, try to help people. And we always tried to do that. And where, where I was fortunate is a lot of times I was, I was interacting with these, these baseball coaches, strength and conditioning coaches at both the college and professional level in different capacities. Maybe it was speaking at a conference that they attended. So I spoke at like the, the ABCA conference in 2012 and 2014. I mean, that's 5,000 baseball coaches. And when you get in front of that audience and you, you automatically, you know, kind of establish a, a level of credibility, everything gets a little bit easier. Um, you know, we started to get more big league guys, more guys that, you know, like Tim Collins, you know, him making it to the big leagues, the Royals at age 21, 
you know, at five foot seven, like that, that helped to put us on the map. Mm. Um, in 2011, Massachusetts had an unbelievable draft class and, you know, most of them trained at our facility. So, you know, I think there were a couple of like, you know, big compelling moments that, that allow you to maybe establish some credibility industry wide. But what was really cool, I would say, you know, in the last five years of baseball, the professional ranks have gotten way more Mm -hmm. open-minded. All of a sudden we have, you know, so much more communication from team to team. You know, you go to these off season events and, you know, you can have, you know, big league pitching coaches rubbing elbows with, with high school coaches, just in general, the, you know, the internet, you know, unfortunately it can escalate some people who are underqualified to to start them, but it can also connect some really good people who collectively, you know, kind of create a scenario where like a rising tide lifts all ships. So I think that the the caliber of coaching has gotten better and better. So talk about, because Darren's sitting over here, he's about to start writing some notes. Oh, down. I'm ready to go, man. I'm about. To, I have a, a 19 year old, and we've been in youth baseball, club baseball, majors yep. for since he was seven. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and so I, I want to go. I want you to go yeah. and ask your question, but we're gonna go down this yeah. road here in a second. Yeah, I mean, because because Darren's sitting here, he's got a 19 year old son, and he's he's gonna listen to this episode. There may yeah. be 14, 15, 16 year old baseball, whatever, any sport. Uh, mm-hmm. They need to understand why strength and conditioning is so yeah. important to the development of them as players. Because what you were talking about earlier, I actually was intern at our, at our, my the university I went to, I played football mm-hmm. at Abilene Christian University. And I yeah. interned with the strength and conditioning coach. And I was in charge of baseball, tennis, and golf. And mm-hmm. those players, at least at that level, could care less about yeah. what we were doing in the weight room. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's kind of the mindset. It's starting to shift, like you talked about, it's starting to shift a little bit. People are understanding the importance. But I, what I want you to talk to us about, and if somebody, a young kid's listening, I want them to know why it's so important to the development of them as a player. Yeah, I, I think it's multifaceted, right? Everything from work capacity to, you know, the actual, you know, quantifiable improvements and, and things like that. And obviously all the way up to, to strength and power development. There, there's certainly merits there. You know, here's what I'll tell you that the weight room can do that nothing else can do. Um, it can immediately get you dramatically outside of your comfort zone, right? So, you know, we see a lot of guys, you know, who just have this remarkable ability to, to flip the switch. I mean, obviously you, you talk about guys like Max Scherzer, like I've been fortunate to be around Max. Like Max has this, this other level that people don't have. Um, you know, and it's because he's trained that. And I think what we have is, you know, I I look at my training on a yearly basis and right now, like I have a bunch of seven out of 10 sessions, but if I'm consistent, like I can still, you know, maintain a pretty good level of fitness and and really benefit from that. But, you know, I I can sniff an, an eight or a nine here and there, maybe, maybe twice, three times a year, I find a 10 out of 10. I think we have a whole lot of kids out there that have never sniffed a five. They don't even know what a, they don't even know what a seven is. And, And there's a lot of reasons for that one. They, you know, we have, you know, not just helicopter parents. We have, we have snowplow parents that make everything easy for them. Preach. But I think the other thing you think about is like you can very tactfully and quickly and easily hide all your failures in this world, right? We've got Instagram filters that make you look more attractive. You can just delete all the videos when you, you gave up home runs and, you know, post the 94 mile an hour heater that you painted on the outside corner. Like you can do all that stuff. And so I think we're, we're safeguarding kids from failure, but the weight room never lies. Right? Uh, it's, it's Say that again. 
Yeah. It's, Louder it's, for the people I, in the back. Yeah, there's like an amazing like Henry Rollins quote about that. I can't remember what it actually is, but the weight room never lies. It's it's purely quantifiable, um, you know, and, and you can make, you know, really, really good progress if you're consistent with it. Um, and so Mike Boyle's a good friend. Mike's been in the industry, you know, as long as I've been on Alive. And I, I remember him talking about his daughter, um, you know, is now in college. I think she won a national championship as a freshman. She's one of the really, really talented female hockey players in the country. And um, he talked about just getting in two lifts a week from age 11 on. So from ages 11 to 17, you know, sometimes it was four days a week in the off season. Sometimes it was zero or one when it was in season or they were traveling for a family vacation or whatever it is. But if you look at seven years times 52 weeks in the year, you know, that's, that's a hundred, you know, four, you know, sessions a year. Like if you get in like close to 800 sessions over the course of that period, mm. when someone else doesn't take it seriously, it's, it's just this massive advantage. Mm. And honestly, particularly for female athletes, because it's, it's even less accepted, unfortunately. Um, and I'm especially cognizant of that because I have daughters, but um, you know, that the weight room teaches you so many invaluable skills, but what it does above all else is it makes all your skill development work that much more effective. It gives you a rich proprioceptive environment. It gives you exposure to movement patterns. You don't have elsewhere elsewhere. It gives you stability in the ranges of motion you have. So if you're that gangly, you know, 12 year old who hasn't hit a, a growth spurt and you're just like kind of loosey goose, it puts some good stiffness in the right places. And what that does is when you go and you get a, a wide receivers coach or a pitching coach or a shooting coach or anything, they can do their job so much better. Um, so I often tell guys, I, I'd love to get kids, you know, in the weight room at like 12, 13. Mm, um, mm-hmm. and the reason is, is not just because there's, there's physiological benefits, but it's also because I don't have to undo bad habits. You know, if they go and do their own, they mess around in the basement and I get them at 16 and they move like crap. Like we've missed out on some really crucial formative years. So I'd rather have them learn it correctly from a young age. You know, not that there's, there's a little bit of like the off factor when a kid comes into a weight room at 12 or 13 and looks around and sees, you know, high school and professional and college athletes doing their thing where you, you kind of hook them at, at the right age before they get a chance to be apathetic about that stuff. God, I wish yeah. my 19 my year old would have got hooked at that age. <laughs> yeah. He still can't find the weight room. Uh, <laughs> but you know, the, the question I had for you and, and the reason why I, I've been so, you know, intrigued about having this conversation with you is because I've been in that club baseball world yeah, for many of years. And there's been so many, you know, I, I've seen kids throw 70 at, 10 years old, throw 75 pitches. What do you tell these, not only the, the coaches, what do you tell the parents that, yeah. that are these helicopter parents who follow their kids all over the country? Yeah, at and 10, think that their kid's going to be, you know, a high school draft The Derek Jeter. Yeah. You know, yeah. what do you tell these, these coaches, specifically these coaches who allow these kids to throw that many pitches on them off the mound? Yeah. You know, I think for starters, it is getting better. You know, mm-hmm. I'll say that we, you know, pitchsmart.org is a great website that I, I send tons and tons of parents together uh, to, to visit. You know, the SMI has done a good job putting that out in conjunction with major league baseball where they, they do have pretty specific guidelines. And, you know, so we've gotten more pitch count regulations in the high school game, but certainly on the, on the youth levels, it's getting better, but there's, there's still issues there. Um, and the problem is, you know, unfortunately they're not necessarily adherent to those numbers. That's, that's just a number and they think their kid is special and different and um and all that stuff so what i've actually had good success with is and and i'm fortunate i can do this is i show people 
that you can be successful doing it the right way. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if a, if a 13 year old kid comes in and he dropped you through 110 pitches the day before and his arm is hanging, I can walk him across the weight room and introduce him to a big leaguer who was a multi-sport athlete, never threw more than a hundred innings in high school was well-managed. And, and you realize that most of those big league guys are thrilled to have that conversation because they want to grow the game. They, right. they, they know that's important. And we take care of our next generation. Cause even if that kid gets, you know, doesn't play beyond high school, he's a baseball fan for life. Yeah, right? right. That's, that's something we've got to be really, really cognizant of is, is growing the game and, and, and doing things the right way. So I, I always try to not just leverage numbers and percentages and injury risk and all that stuff. I, I try to put a person behind that, that, that lesson. And it's, it served us really well. So what do you say, and, and I'm, I'm really intrigued by this, and especially to have you on, um, is I think baseball probably more than any other youth in high school sport is, is very, very specialized, and yeah. kids play that year-round. What do you say to the parents that are, hey, at 10 years old, you are only playing baseball, and that's all you do year-round? What is your thoughts on the multi-sport training? Yeah. I mean, first off, the research supports that you're more likely to be a big leaguer if you don't specialize. Because usually what happens is, uh, I think there, there's an old quote from Istanbul, who's a pretty well-known guy in the, the early sports specialization world. He says, early to ripen, early to rot. Yeah. The ones that are the best players at that age, they're actually the more likely to get overused. They're the ones that get hurt. And we have like research study after research study, literally a, n- a new one just came out like three days ago that I quoted that, you know, talks about injury rates and, and guys who identify as, you know, early sports specialization people, like you're better off slow playing it, right? It's, it's like going to, to, to learn how to run a marathon, right? If you go out and you gradually increase your volume, you, you bump it up maybe 10% a week, whatever it may be, it works well. You find periods in the, the year where you take a step away from running, maybe you cycle, maybe you lift, you cross train, you do well. If you go out and you sell out for the dream and wind up hurt, you miss out on so much yeah. development yeah. So there's something to be said about having just like this steady linear path and when you have an injury at youth levels like it, it literally just sinks your ship because yeah. that's such a uh, an important time to have consistent training like you can make so much consistent progress just from puberty and showing up like puberty, yeah. puberty makes a lot of coaches look way smarter than <laughs> how did you get him to do it in his junior year that we never thought he could do his sophomore year <laughs> I'm just yeah, it's coach. crazy. And, and it's funny. There's so many coaches that'll pat themselves on the back because, you know, a kid hit that <laughs> developmental mind milestone, but really in a lot of ways it, it wasn't his doing at all. But mm. um, I always come back to you. Like all I want is consistent effort. Like keep showing up, mm-hmm. learn how to learn how to put in good effort and give me a bunch of seven out of tens mm-hmm. over the course of a year. And, and you'd be shocked at how good you can be in the long term. Yeah. I, I have a 19 year old again that, that plays baseball and it's his love. It's his passion. Uh, and yeah. the one thing I've, and I'll, I'll speak specific to, to him, is he had an injury his freshman year in high school, played shortstop, actually a sophomore year in high school, injured his shoulder, you know, but it wasn't major. But yeah. his throwing motion changed. Yeah. And I could tell you that his freshman and sophomore year, he threw the ball, he's shortstop, he could throw the ball from any angle that he wanted to throw it from. And then his senior year, Lost it, and it became almost like the yips. Yep, you know, in, in throwing the in throwing the baseball, and I'm sure you get these questions a lot. Yeah. You know, how yeah. do you answer? Because I I'm not I'm a football guy. You yeah. see player tackle him. That's all I know, <laughs> right? So you know, in baseball, it's so specific on angles and what you have to do as far as you know mental yeah. mental preparation. What do you tell a young kid like that that's gone through this process? 
Yeah. I mean, the first thing I would tell you is remember throw to baseball is the single fastest motion documented in sports. You know, it's, it's 7,000 degrees per second of internal rotation at a shoulder. Like, you know, you, you wouldn't just take like your 1983 Chevy Cavalier out to the Daytona 500 and like, you know, just basically put the, put the gas pedal down and pray for the best. Like, so there is a fair amount of preparation that comes to it. And we, we do have to manage these kids. We don't have to baby them. You know, we want to be careful about that for the reasons kind of I alluded to earlier. But I do think we need to give them a little bit of preparation and, and protect them, you know, by, by changing the situations. And, you know, a lot of that is just understanding, like, you know, you, you push them into playing multiple sports. And, you know, I think the thing people forget is like playing multiple sports doesn't mean it's like you got to be on a football team in the fall, basketball team in the winter, and then baseball team in the spring. Like you realize like you can go play pickup hoops, yeah. um, you know, in the wintertime twice a week and, you know, do your strength and conditioning and get on a good throwing program. Um, but what I'll tell you this is like we've had a lot of success developing really good high school arms at our Massachusetts facility. Um, and part of the reason is, you know, Massachusetts is not nearly as many people as our Florida facility. The weather basically does some of the hard work for us. You know, you, you can't play fall ball past October 15th in Massachusetts. Your your hands are freezing. And so a lot of those guys, they, you know, they shut down at the end of July, they go into football preseason or soccer preseason, whatever it is, you know, they basically play until Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving rolls around the season ends, they get on a good throwing program. You know, they get on 14 to 16 weeks before the the baseball season starts in Massachusetts, the third week in March, they shovel snow off the field and, you know, they play a 25, 30 game season and they go to summer ball. So they're kind of competitive from April one to the end of July. And then they're, they're developmental, the rest like that, that fall spring split works so well. You can't do that in Florida. And it's why mm. the, the injury rates are astronomically mm. high down there. Yeah. Everybody's trying to get a piece of you. Everybody wants you to play on their fall ball team. Everybody wants you to go to their showcase. So a big part of, of being successful, you know, is, is really just being willing to say no. Um, wow. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, Trevor Moad's become a good friend more in the mental skills space. He works yeah, with we, we, had, we had Trevor yeah, on we had Trevor uh, last yeah, week. Tre- Trevor's amazing. And one of the things he talks about is the first step towards progress. You know, the first step from going negative to neutral is elimination, like mm-hmm. eliminate stupid stuff. If you're trying to, you know, improve your diet, like get the crappy food out of your house, right? If you're trying to improve your life, get negative people out of your life life there are events that you go to in baseball that are just negative for your development Mm -hmm. you know you spend a fortune to go to this this showcase and you you basically throw as hard as you can and um at a time when you're not ready you're all you're doing is risking injury and chances are you're not even gonna get seen by anybody at that event Mm -hmm. you're seeing kids get division one scholarships off videos on twitter so nowadays like it's it's become much much easier to develop guys um you know and get exposure for them if they're just cognizant of like trust in the process and doing things at the right time. Uh, that's so op- it's it's so funny cuz it's so opposite of what you think. You think more yeah. reps, more time, more yeah. effort is going to get me where yeah. I want to go. Yeah. The the gonna, the opposite I'm, is true. Rest is is super important recovery. Yeah. It's the right kind of reps. So here's the best example I can possibly give you. So I, I've, I've been a consultant for New Balance since 2011. We've been fortunate to do some really cool stuff on you know, shoe design and helping to build their baseball brand and all that stuff. But one of the things New Balance does is the area code games. It's, you know, mm-hmm. aside from this year where it's kind of a weird thing, but they run the area code games in Long Beach. And basically that is your best, probably 220 to 250 high school players in the country. And they all come together and you go to that. And it's, it's the real deal. I mean, this is... 95 mile an hour arms thrown to first round hitters. Like it's, it's, it's on another level and it's huge for a, 
you know, a, an outfielder from Massachusetts to go out there and be able to face a, an incredible arm from Arizona or California because you don't get those kind of at-bats in high school ball here necessarily. So if you show well, it can it can bode well for you. And there there have been some names, obviously, like, a you know, Clayton Kershaw played there and, you know, some of these other big names that have become big leaguers. You'd be shocked at how few of our big league guys made those rosters. Yeah, Noah yeah. Syndergaard didn't make Noah Syndergaard didn't make the uh, the Rangers roster. Aaron Judge didn't make the California roster. Mm. Um, craziest one ever. I was with the Team USA 18 and under national team in 2015. And, and uh, there's a, a really sad moment where you got to cut guys right before you know we go to play for a gold medal. Not everybody can be on a 20 man roster. Wow. And our coach stood at the front of the room and he's like, you know what? For those of you guys who get cut, remember we cut Mike Trout from this team. Wow, oh. greatest player ever didn't make it. Oh. And, and and sure enough, from the kids that that we cut that year when I was with Team USA, man, there were there were two first rounders in that group that didn't make the national team. Wow! And then yeah, other nice. kids that were on the national team who who are great kids and they're great ball players that didn't pan out to professional baseball. So we think that we can predict success so well. When I go and I poll, and I did this three or four years ago, I pulled a room of like thirty big leaguers we had trained in the offseason. There was one guy that made his area code roster. Like wow, I asked Max that is Scherzer, amazing. Amazing. Max Scherzer didn't even know what area code was. He was, you know, he was a raw, <laughs> late, late, late pick out of high school and went to Missouri and learned how to work hard. And Corey Kluber, right? Corey Kluber only had a couple college offers out of high school. He didn't make it. It's so you just realize there are so many guys that you know they grew six inches their freshman in college, or yeah. they found the weight room. And a lot of those other guys never panned out because they they used up all their bullets early. They tried to you know be everything to everybody for yeah. a long time. So like. I, I can't tell you how many late bloomers we have. And it's, you know, it's a good message for a lot of the the parents and kids that are, that are listening here. Make sure you're working hard, more yeah, smart and everything, sure. but be careful about how you compare yourselves to people. Cause yeah, there are a lot of guys that, that find it between 18 and 20 instead of 14 to 16. So uh, the question I'm having, I want to be really specific here is yeah. that there are a lot of kids that are out there again, you know, myself and parents that are out there that are looking to, to, looking in the right trying to look for the right direction as far as training for their kids mm -hmm. and i know they can't make it up to they, here in texas you can't make it up to massachusetts you can't make it up yeah. make to make it up to uh, florida yeah. to see you know cressy performance yeah. how how do they get their how do they get the knowledge that they're looking for do they i mean yeah. if they want if they want that 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 performance from you how do they get yeah. in contact with you yeah, so I think first thing I'll tell you is there there are resources everywhere, right? There are good coaches, way more than we realize. You know, that's the cool thing about the industry is as much, you know, as there's a low barrier to entry and there's some things about it that aren't awesome. Um, you know, there are more and more good coaches available, guys on the throwing side of things, going guys on the, the strength conditioning side of things. If you're if you're willing to look, so I always tell guys, you know, ask around, get a feel for who the people are near you who can really help out. And, um, you know, in terms of us, we have the facility in Florida, Massachusetts. So we will have guys that'll, you know, hop on a flight and come for three or four days and do an evaluation and learn as much as they can and, you know, kind of take some distance-based programming home for them. And then, you know, also there's there's amazing resources online that were never there before. Like, you know, you can you can tweet videos of yourself to big leaguers to ask for mechanical advice. Like, that <laughs> wasn't there years All ago. Right. And they're guys that are that'll interact with you and. And, and be really, really front and center on it. And that's just, it's a, it's a cool dynamic right now for the industry. There's some, some really good people that are working hard to make expertise more accessible. Um, but, you know, we, we do our best to do it in-house and then obviously try to lead from the front and put the content out there to help people as well. Yeah, and we'll, and we'll get to that towards the end of, of where people can find you specifically yeah. and, and your website and things like that. Yeah. There, there's a quote that, you know, you've, you've had some quotes in this, in this episode so far. There's a quote 
you know what? Honestly, you may have said it. I don't remember where I heard this first, but I live and die by this in training is methods are many, but principles are few. Yeah. And so that was Bruce, that was Bruce Lee, right? Maybe so. I, <laughs> I, I heard in the, I heard in the strength and conditioning realm, but yeah. my, my point in saying that is if I'm an 11, 12, 13, whatever age, and I'm just getting into strength, <clears throat> excuse me. And I'm just getting into strength and conditioning. What are some of the principles, you know, I, I realize this is a nuanced question, but yeah. what are some of the things that I can base a program around to set those principles from the beginning and set that foundation? Yeah, I think the first thing I would say is regardless of the sport you're in, like there's an efficient way to move, right? Um, you know, we can debate whether a dumbbell goblet squat or a barbell split squat or a safety squat bar forward lunge or whatever it is. I think we can all agree that single leg stability is important for an athlete, right? Mm-hmm. So there are these crucial fundamental patterns, things like hip hinges, squat, single leg, you know, push, pull, all these different things. So I think, you know, step one is be exposed to a wide variety of movements, particularly as a young athlete, you want that really kind of rich proprioceptive environment where you're, we're exposed to a bunch of different things, because what that does is it prepares you for the chaos of sports, but it does it in a controlled environment. Um, and that's, that's where the weight room can really kick in. You know, when you, when you go out and you sprint, you're putting six to eight times your body weight and ground reaction forces on every step. Like that's, that's pretty uncontrolled. Um, you know, you carry a backpack around at school, like it puts you in some weird positions. You jump out of a tree, you know, these things that kids do all the time, you know, they're, they're way more chaotic than we could ever expose them to in a weight room. So mm-hmm. I think there's that. Um, so certainly expose yourself to a wide variety of patterns and preserve the patterns that you have. Um, you know, certainly progressive overload is another one. Be, you know, stronger next week than you are this week because of the stimulus that you've applied. Um, you know, I think another principle that's, that's huge is, is out recover your peers. You know, we get so caught up in talking about the training side of things mm-hmm. that there are tons of high school athletes that literally they should just, if they just shut their phone off at 8 PM and got to bed earlier and ate well and slept well and did the right things on that front, hydrated, you know, stayed away from sodas and instead drank more water. Like these are all things we know that can exponentially, you know, improve your success rate. So, you know, certainly that's a principle for me as well. Um, you know, I think consistency is a principle, yeah. right? The continuously show up, um, you know, and, and be around people who will push you to be better. I think, you know, especially when we start to talk about athletes, they're trying to take that next step. Um, you guys are all, you know, you know, former competitive athletes. You, you realize there are people that you've trained with, you've been around who just were not good influences on you. Mm-hmm. And you, you have to make that conscious decision to, to pull them out of your lives and kind of move in a different direction. And, you know, you do that well after your athletic careers, right? There's some, you know, there are parents of you know uh kids that go to school or whatever with your kids that you just you don't you don't see eye to eye with them they're not the right fit for you so i think some of those are the, the principles that i look at but you try not to get too caught up in the nitty-gritty of of like the methods early on mm-hmm. because all those other you know those are the big rocks that you need to prioritize much much sooner talk about the you know even from a young age i know you know younger athletes are, are a lot more pliable than yeah. you know professional athletes that you know have have spent a lot of time, you know, creating this base foundation, but talk about yeah. to, to the younger athletes or parents of younger athletes, the importance of flexibility and mobility. Yeah. Yeah. So w- one of the things that's cool is we're actually learning more about kind of how to train kids throughout their lifespan. Um, and, you know, first off the whole concept of like resistance training, stunting growth is, is completely overdone. Um, Dr. Avery Fagan at the college of New Jersey has done some, some really good research demonstrating this. You don't have to worry about your kids. You mean, growth. you mean if a kid, if yeah. a kid's 14 and he's back squats, he's not going to stay yeah. five, four for the rest of his life. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay. You know, okay. I was, we're assuming like age appropriate stuff. You're <laughs> okay. not doing stupid stuff um, just to look impressive on Instagram. But, you know, I think 
you know, there's, there's some, some lessons there. One of the things that we know is that we have a young athlete kind of in that 10, 12 age range, maybe even 13. Like a lot of times they're just loosey goosey. They're very hypermobile. They haven't hit their growth spurt. And that's where adding some resistance training can be so powerful because they, they get some stability in the range of motion they have. And it kind of prepares them for, um, for the growth spurt that's about to come when, you know, the bones stretch out much faster than the, the muscles and tendons can keep up. So in a situation like that, that's a great time to get strong. What's interesting in, in Greg Rose, um, is a good friend from the Titleist Performance Institute. And they've talked a lot about kind of critical instance for training certain things. And one of the best times, believe it or not, to train power is during that adolescent growth spurt. When they're kind of going through that very tight, think about what tight tendons do. They store elastic energy well. You know, yeah. if you look at most of the, the fastest guys in professional sports, they're guys, you know, with those long Achilles tendons, a lot of them to jump out of the gym and run fast and change direction and so to some degree, I think um, about we me. can leverage those really, really well. <laughs> You're so, talking about me, Eric? Did you just I just, <laughs> just describe Darren? Uh, just I did. Broke me I down. Did. <laughs> but but certainly all along, man, the, the flexibility side of things is huge. Like you, you've got to train mobility. It's it's the ability to get into the you know the posture slash positions that you want, and then mm-hmm. honestly, you also be be uh, be stable in those positions as well. So you know that's all something that we attack in all of our warm ups, and you know for guys that need even more, we'll come back and we'll do some extra dedicated sessions and. You know, certainly there are, there are initiatives, things like yoga, um, you know, functional range conditioning, some of that stuff that guys will use um, also to kind of optimize recovery away from, from training sessions. So definitely a high priority thing. That's not the sexy stuff the young athletes love no. to hear about, but, but it yeah. makes a difference. Yeah, it's part it's, of it. It's yeah. the boring, quote unquote boring stuff. You know, functional range conditioning yeah. you just you just referred to yeah. is a great resource for yeah. pre-workout movement prep, uh, yeah. getting ready for your, I think, as me as a young kid, I would just go to the weight room and just get after it. You do Let's your, cra- do your yeah. crazy eights and then, <laughs> yeah. then, then hit it. <laughs> Let's go. And, and yeah. what you realize is the importance of movement prep and, and mobility. Mm-hmm. If you need it now, now some kids they're they're you know hyper mobile and they need to yeah. f- the fo- Their movement prep is more focused on stability training. Yep. So it's obviously Absolutely. all individual based, and and you need somebody that that knows what they're doing that can look at your kid individually and say, hey, you need more stability. You need more mobility. It's not a one yep. size fits all. We would yeah. like it to be, <laughs> but Make it's it a not. Lot easier. Yeah, it would be a lot easier. But that's, the, I guess, that's the 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 beauty of you know a really good coach versus not. Um, yeah. So you were talking about you know just just movement, uh, wide ranges of movement. Can you talk a yeah. little bit about the three planes of motion and what they are yeah. and why they're important in any strength training training program? Yeah. So your, your sagittal plane is kind of going to be the one everybody recognizes the easiest. That's straight ahead. So, you know, think a squat, think a push up, think, you know, forward and back motion. Your frontal plane is going to be more side to side. So think of like a lateral lunge or, you know, a skater jump, hide and whatever you want to call it. And then obviously you have the transverse plane, which is a much more rotational. What we know about most sports is, you know, they're, they're a combination of all three. You know, and that becomes particularly important as we're talking about rotational athletes who need to load and unload in all three planes of motion. And, you know, I think historically in the weight room, we've always really trained the sagittal plane pretty, pretty heavily, uh, particularly in the context of a lot of your classic bilateral lifts, squats, deadlifts, Mm -hmm. Olympic lifts. And they don't necessarily give us as much um, as much benefit, you know, beyond just, you know, really stimulating the nervous system, put on muscle mass and stuff like that. So I think it's always important to have an element of other stuff in there, you know, things like throwing med balls and lateral lunges and rotational rows, just to give people, you know, exposures. And and where we see this actually a lot is you think about a lot of athletes that that come to professional baseball after college uh, sports, maybe they're in a a college weight room where there's 15 power racks, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, they do a ton of barbell stuff, which inherently is kind of hard to do a lot of rotational training with. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, 
you bring them into pro ball and all of a sudden they've got access to, you know, some different initiatives, right? Maybe we use, you know, some rotational rows on the cable. Maybe we look at, you know, some eccentric overloading with something like a Versapoli. You know, we have the Proteus in our facility. We have all these different ways to kind of give them a stimulus that they haven't previously happened. And, you know, there's an old saying, like, the best program is the one you're not on. So you're always just trying to chase this adaptation that guys haven't previously found. Yeah, that's the thing is you get you get impatient. You program hop. Yeah. You think, oh, this this next program is going to be the one that's got the yeah. secret. The secret, like you were saying earlier, is consistency. consistency yeah, it's right. showing up every day. It's giving that 7 out of 10 at least effort. That's where you're going to get your bang for your buck yeah. is showing up and putting in the work. Yeah. And it's recognizing your own inherent biases, right? Like there are things, there are exercises that I enjoy better than others, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you look at people, they go to social media to post to just reaffirm their own beliefs. They go there to find people who agree with them and tell them how awesome they are. And, you know, we know that's probably not the best fit. Like for me, right? I'm, I'm a strong guy, but I'm not necessarily very reactive. If I want to run faster, going and putting a hundred pounds on my deadlift is not going to make me faster. It'll probably actually mm-hmm. slow me down more. I need to sprint more, do more change of direction, do more jumping, stuff like that. So just doing what you're always good at and, and what you enjoy the most isn't necessarily the way to get where you need to talk, go. talk about that. Cause I want to, I want to settle there. Cause that was really, you know, a, a port, mm-hmm. big part of my training was like, I, I was like you, I was not a fast guy, right? Like that was something that I always struggled with. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, no. <laughs> No, I didn't know that. Had they time your 40 again? Would they use the time? By the way, way, and most you talked about like rotational stuff. Like I was on a train track when I played football, so I only needed the forward backward movement. That's all I needed for my (laughs) functionality, (laughs) my position. But no, talk about that, like the ability to increase speed, right? And what that takes, because you you look at these, you know, sophomores and juniors in high school that, hey, I'm running, you know, I'm running a 5.1, I'm running a 5 flat, but to get into college, I've got to be sub 4.8, you know, obviously depending on the position, but really what are the the key ingredients of improving your 40 time, your 20 time, your 10? Yeah. Yeah. So the first thing I'll tell you is, is think about this continuum, right? So you have, you have absolute speed that's running, jumping, you know, throwing a five ounce baseball, whatever it is. It's all very unloaded stuff at one end of the continuum. So that's over here at the other spectrum. You have absolute strength. That's lifting really heavy stuff, you know, back squat that takes 10 seconds to, to finish the rep, bench press, whatever it is. And then you have a lot of stuff in the middle, right? Maybe you have like Olympic lifts is like a strength speed type movement. Mm-hmm. You got some med balls, which are more speed strength, maybe like some, some you know, weighted plyos, stuff like that. So you have this, this whole continuity to train. What we realize is that um, when you're 13 and you've never lifted a weight, you don't even get to have that conversation because a, a mm. foundation of strength buys you a seat at the table, right? You can't, you can't talk about fancy stuff. If you, if you haven't gone through, you, know, you can't do calculus if you haven't done algebra first. So the first thing I would say is you got to build a foundation of strength. And once you've done that, you effectively what you've done is you, you've pushed the absolute strength end of the spectrum to offset the fact that everything you've done in little league and peewee football, all that stuff mm, has yeah. been at this absolute speed end of the continuum. And once you've got this foundation of strength in place, then you start to realize that you can benefit a lot from the stuff in the middle. And that's why, like, you know, when I look at a young athlete, like you can make progress on as little as 40% of one rep max, right? Just by showing up, grooving technique, optimizing neuromuscular recruitment, how well that brain, the spinal cord, those peripheral nerves recruit all those motor units and and teach you how to use muscles, right? Um, And eventually, then you can get to the other stuff where you can benefit a lot more. I think what we historically see is we see a lot of athletes who start out weak, then they get strong. They realize it makes them a bunch faster, but then they keep selling out for that dream because they don't realize that adding more force isn't necessarily the problem. The problem is learning how to use that force quicker. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, I think this is also where we see, you know, look at the NFL, right. We see a ton of guys that go to college and they get freaky strong, right. They, they move some insane weights and they get in the NFL and they, they a lot of times take, take a step back. Like yeah. the first off the game is played at his insane speeds and you're much more banged up after games and all that stuff. But they can do that because they've, they've built that foundation of strength to tap into. So they can probably train more rate of force development, more speed, strength, stuff like that. And they do just enough volume to keep their, their body weight up where it needs to be. Um, baseball is a lot different than football in that regard because it's not as accepted to get brutally strong in college. And now that we have a lot of international players where you might get a kid that, that we signed out of the Dominican Republic at age 19 or 20 who's never picked up a weight. So he's got to make mm. up the, you know, the time that he might have missed on that side of things. So, um, you know, everyone starts in a different point, but you have to be honest with yourself. Where do you stand on that absolute speed to absolute strength continuum? And then you figure out where, where you need to kind of fill in the gaps. If you're a power lifter and you want to play in the NFL, you better start running fast and changing directions. Mm-hmm. If you're, you know, weak as can be and you've never been in a weight room and you want to, you know, go and compete at a higher level, you probably need to put some strength and some muscle mass on. I got a two-part question for you uh, along with the lines of, of Tommy Johns. And, and I know it's been a devastating injury for a lot yeah. of pitchers over the years. Uh, the first part is, you know, why has it been such a, a huge problem early on? And then sec- that yep. second question would be the the recovery side. The mm-hmm. you know how are they training you know post surgery to recover yeah. from this? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is is one of the challenges is an elbow is a hinge joint, right? It's it's really predominantly built for flexion extension. When you go to throw a baseball, you lay your arm back and you go from flexion extension, but in the process, you get an element of valgus stress. So you get this little uh, ligament on the inside of your elbow that, that takes on a, a lot of that force. And, you know, we can we can easily rupture it in, in models and cadavers. You know, obviously in the world, we have, you know, soft tissue structures that cross the elbow that help to protect it. And, you know, we can get the shoulder moving the right way and, you know, and certainly manage the positions that it's in to, to keep it healthy from a mechanical standpoint. Um, but that that's the challenge with the UCL is that it's a very, very small structure that has to, you know, control a, a high velocity movement in a pretty tight window. Um, and, and when it goes, it's, it's, it's debilitating. You, you know, it's very, very hard to throw with a, with a partially torn UCL, let a full tear in, let alone a full tear in your UCL. So that's why it's been so devastating is that it's, it's a limiting factor, right? It would be like trying to play in the NFL with a ruptured Achilles. You just, you can't do it. Um, so with, with that said, you know, the, as you alluded to, the rehab is long and arduous. It's, it's a problem because you have to ask a, a tendon to become a ligament. Um, so that process takes time on a couple of fronts. One, you have to respect the initial repair where, you know, they're going to drill, you know, basically holes in two bones and thread that thing through and tighten it up so that you, you repair what previously was there. Um, and then that graft has to take time to, to stretch out. And then it also has to take on the properties of a ligament as opposed to just a tendon. So there's a, there's a feel component to it. And now that there's usually some concurrent stuff that's going on. Guys may have bone spurs removed. They may have loose bodies in the joint. They may have their ulnar nerve moved to the other side of the medial epicondyle. So it's just a, it's a small joint that has a lot of stuff going on and it's a, it's a vulnerable position during the throwing delivery. So, um, unfortunately it's become a a multi-billion dollar question in in the baseball world. Here's what I can tell you. I don't think that this is a function of major league baseball doing a lot of things wrong. What we know is that when you look at injuries in the really big grand scheme of things, what's the number one predictive factor for an injury? 
it's a previous injury, mm-hmm. right? If, you know, we, we talk about the hamstrings injury epidemic, like a lot of times that's a guy who pulled his hammy and then he goes and pulls it seven or eight more times over the course of, of his career, just because that, that tissue never aligns the way that it should. I've looked at a lot of teenage elbows over the years, especially now that I'm in, in, in professional baseball. Like you can see every single elbow is broken by the time it gets to age 18. Now wow. what happens and we're realizing this more and more. And, and Dr. Andrews has spoken about this very prominently is when you see these 21, 20 or two year old kids who are throwing 97, 98 and you go in and you do their Tommy John surgery after they rupture that ligament, when they look at it, that, that little ligament has areas of previous calcification. So in other words, they had these low-grade injuries when they were 12, 13, 14. When they got overused, they threw really hard when they were young. They didn't even necessarily perceive it, or they did, and they just thought it was, you know, whatever else. Um, and those areas basically, you know, it, it doesn't just heal. Like if you fracture your arm and your radius heals up, it's more of a, a calcification that eventually becomes like a point of weakness on the, uh, on the ligament. So a lot of times, um, I think this is, this is definitely, you know, honestly the case when, when Japanese players come to the U S and we see ligament issues thereafter, a lot of times they blame American training techniques, but we know that the Japanese youth pitchers tend to get way more overused. Um, we have studies that show it, that their elbows are tend to be uglier than American elbows at a young age, just because they throw so much. They're also, you know, and generally they're from an ethnic standpoint, they're more predisposed to, um, hypermobility, which can make that ligament a little bit looser. So I think a lot of these injuries that we're seeing in the, in the 18 to 25 year old age range, you know, they're guys that, that really did damage at, at the youth levels and it just came to fruition. And you realize when you go and you look at all these things, we're not seeing a lot of like 33 year old grizzly yeah. MLB veterans who blow out late. Yeah. You know, if you've been pretty healthy to age 30, you stand a pretty good chance of, of going out there and continuing to do your thing. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's a low back or, you know, you roll an ankle cover in first base or something like that. But, um, and, and that was some Jeff Passan who's an ESPN writer now talked about, that was kind of the, the biggest takeaway for me from his book, the arm is the only thing we know about arm injuries is that previous arm injuries predict them well. Mm. Wow. Oh, wow. So, so take care, take care of your kids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can, can you, can you talk a little bit about, you know, we focus a lot on athletes and as well we should. Can you talk a little bit more about the general public and why strength training is so important for just the general, yeah. you know, if I'm a 40-year-old guy and I'm a little bit out of shape listening to this episode, why, why should I start or a strength training? a 35-year-old a little out of shape hosting this episode. <laughs> <laughs> why should I start a strength training program? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a couple things, um, you know, I actually way more than a couple, there's a myriad of things, right? There's a reason we're trying to figure out how to, how to load astronauts in space flight because we're worried about them, you know, having bone and muscle loss. So, mm. you know, there, there is dramatic stimulating properties on, on both of those fronts. Right. So like I had a DEXA scan before my first year of powerlifting. And then 11 months later, I put on a third of a pound of bone at age 23. Like that's wow. a big deal. Like yeah. you load up. And if you're, if we're talking about females, right, you're not both building bone density when you're, when you're 60 or 70, you're trying to hold on to it. So if you can use it to stimulate that, that's a really, really big deal. We, we adapt to the loads we, we get put on. So, um, you know, beyond just the simple fact that allows us to build some muscle mass, um, we know resistance training tends to in, in, increase androgen receptor content. So it makes us more sensitive to, to hormones that, you know, keep us young and vibrant, things like testosterone and all that. And, you know, that's something that, that tends to fall off as we age, right? We, we, we lose a lot of, um, you know, those beneficial levels and, you know, testosterone to cortisol ratios, you know, change for the worse. I think beyond that, um, we just saw some, some really good studies that came out that showed like cognitive benefits for resistance training. Symptoms of Alzheimer's um, is a big one. The one that I think is the biggest one, though, is 
we know that one of your biggest risk factors when you get old for dying is a fall. Like if you fracture your hip, that's, that's, I mean, people are talking about coronavirus right now. Like they they should be just as scared as of falling in the shower and fracturing a hip because Mm -hmm. it, it predicts mortality at a very, very high rate. Mm. What protects you from, from something like that? Your ability to right the ship when you slip and you fall, um, you know, bad things tend to happen. And a, a big part of that is not having your power fall off. We know that strength is the foundation for power. And, you know, it it tends to fall off decade by decade by decade. So a lot of the work you put in to create a foundation at age 35, 40, 45, 50 are the things that are going to help to sustain you once you're, you know, 80, 85. And just anecdotally, my my grandfather passed away in 2010 at age 88. um, And he had Alzheimer's that that got progressively worse over the years. He had polio in one leg. um, So he had basically a left leg that really didn't work particularly well. He had a a transfer of a, a tendon from his toe to replace his Achilles tendon when he was four or five. Mm. But when he was 80, he slipped on the ice and he broke his right kneecap. And looking back on it, it was the thing that made him a little bit more sedentary. Like he kind of stopped going to the gym. He was a little bit more reluctant to go out on walks and things like that. And cognitively in the last eight years or so, he declined really, really fast. And that could have been normal aging, but I look back on that and he, he didn't have a good leg. And, and I, mm. I think it had a really profound impact on, a lot of the stuff that was happening up here as, as things progress. So I always come back to it as like, you're, you're putting money in the bank when you, when you exercise consistently at a young age and, and build a good foundation. And only that, like, I want to be able to go and get back into playing tennis when I'm in my sixties, my seventies, like Mm -hmm. I want to feel like if I want to play golf six days a week, I can do it and not worry about stuff. So I don't anticipate I'm going to be deadlifting 600 forever, (laughs) but you know, if it sets me up for being able to do some cool stuff when I'm, you know, I'm in, I'm in the nursing home someday. It makes me feel a lot better about the efforts now. Yeah. yeah I tell people all the time, life is easier when you're strong. And I'm not saying you yeah. got to go deadlift 700 pounds. Yeah. But when you're strong relatively to your capability, life yeah. is easier when you're strong. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know what I think is a great indicator? And, and you know, obviously, we, you throw everything out the window kind of past age 80. Can you put your own luggage in the overhead compartment oh, on a plane? Man. Like yeah. That for me, when, when I see that, like, if I mean, either your bag is too big or you, you really need to get serious about yeah. you know, that's it. Why, that's why Darren always asks Ben and I to travel with Absolutely. Put his well, bags I up. I've never touched the bag. Uh, and, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you, you work with, you, you work with a lot of professional athletes. Um, yeah. And the one thing that a lot of young kids are always asking me is, what is the mentality of those professional athletes? You see them more than I do. You're seeing them from all different ages. Tell us about their mentality. The ones that are really successful in their profession, what is it about them that makes them special? Yeah, I think the, the first thing I would say is, you know, at least in my world, big leaguers come in all shapes and sizes, right? We, we have guys that are six foot nine and we have guys that are five foot seven, right? And they, they, they span a huge gap. Some are tight, some are loose. So there's all kinds of different ways physiologically that you can be successful. What I, I think I can speak to maybe the, I'll, I'll qualify your answer and I'll say the ones that are really successful for a long time, you know, the ones that have sustainable success, not just mm-hmm. the flash in the pan. Um, you know, for me, there, there are a couple things. I think the first one is that they're open-minded um, because you understand um, it's, it's good conversations with you know guys like Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer and Corey Kluber and, and you know what they're doing well into their 30s now, it has to be different than what they did at 25. And, and for them to be sustainable, you know, for an extended period along, along those lines, you know, it, you have to be open-minded because if you keep doing the same thing, even if you have a really established routine, 
things change, right? You know, after age 30, like tissue extensibility is not as good. You don't bounce back quite as good. So you just have to, you have to be cognizant of the ability to adjust. Um, so you have to establish a routine early on in your career, but then learn how to modify it. Um, the second thing I would just say, and, and this is probably the biggest one is the ability to tune out distractions yeah. and, and the distractions become more and more prevalent at the high school age now. Like it's, it's shocking how many distractions there are, you know, for kids and you know, just the ability to shut your phone off while you're training to not go and check it in the cubby between every set, mm. you know, and, and <laughs> it's not, sound like I, you've I, had I, to like, deal with that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's crazy, man. Like we used to, for a long time, we like banned cell phones on the floor. Like we, you know, I've, I've heard stories about guys, you know, forcing guys to leave them in a basket as they walk in. And I've, I've thought about it. Um, My wife does because, that to guests at our house, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. I, we, we actually did, to be honest, um, we have a, like a, you know, before coronavirus, we had like a kind of a standing staff breakfast at our Massachusetts facility. And when everyone went to breakfast, that was the rule. You put your phone in a pile in the middle of the table for like that hour, mm-hmm. you know, once a week. And it's, I mean, I left my phone at home accidentally, you know, a couple of days ago and, like those two hours were like liberating just to get a break from it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I think the ability to tune out distractions and obviously, you know, if we're talking about big time athletes, you know, like, um, you know, playing for successful teams that are, you know, billion plus dollar brands, like, you know, the ability to just like fly under the radar and be able to tone down and, and get to sleep at night and stuff to, to tune all that stuff out is, is, is really, really important. So I think, um, you know, the ability to get distractions out of the way is uh, across the board. You know, we, we've seen players that have, you know, struggled at the highest level as they go through divorces or they have a sick kid at home or whatever it is like stress is stress, no matter how you, um, you know, no matter how you kind of calculate it, but mm-hmm. it, it does take out, you know, from your, your ability to recover and you just have to be cognizant of all those things are, are building up to create, you know, a perfect storm of challenges for you. How much do you see a correlation between like passion for the sport, right? Like you can tell when a guy just loves ball, like they yeah. just love it. I mean, yeah. how many guys do you see that maybe don't have the passion, but just have the talent that are still yeah. able to succeed versus the guys that maybe don't have the talent, but have the passion? Yeah. I mean, passion, passion is not a way to leverage a career. It, just, it doesn't. I mean, that's every career. That's not just pro sports, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, follow your passion is terrible advice. You, you follow your marketable skills mm-hmm. and your marketable skills, whether that's hitting home runs or really being really good at math. Like ultimately those are the things that initially make you successful in your career. And they allow you to, to create the career that you want. They allow you to dictate what you want to be. Like, think about it. If, throw a baseball hundred miles an hour and you strike out everybody you, you meet, like you're going to get a really good contract and you're going to be able to pick the team that you want to play for in free agency. You're going to get to ask for anything you want in that free agent con- because you built a lot of career capitals. Like I, I'm passionate about baseball and I throw a 61 mile an hour accidental cutter. Like I'm not going to be a major league pitcher, like no matter how passionate I am. So I, I tell that to our interns. I tell that to everybody, like follow your passion is terrible advice. Like, leverage your your marketable skills to create the life that you want mm. yeah. Mm. yeah i love awesome. that i told you i told you guys this guy would be good yeah. <laughs> oh, please <laughs> yeah that's, right, that's right so again good. hey ben you are you are yeah. the best oh, at this oh, man you're you so good ben good job hey, I'm, hey, I'm passionate uh, about finding good guests hey eric as we <laughs> as we start to wrap this up i, yeah. I want to uh you know we, we talked about the general public and mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, you guys as a facility, it's been challenging through the pandemic yeah. and getting people here. 
But talk about and talk to the individuals out there in the general population. You know, Darren calls them civilians because he's above them. <laughs> but uh, but talk about you know talk about what they can be doing to maintain health and maintain strength if they don't have access to a gym. Because you know you guys have talked about the really the benefits of resistance training, building yeah. power, becoming strong. You know, now what if they don't have the equipment at home or have the means to yeah. get those and all they can do is go for a run or a walk? I mean, yeah. what are what are the things that people can be doing really to not just not lose that foundation maybe that they've built? Yeah, it's 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 a valuable point. And, and to be honest, it's it's some of the same stuff pro athletes dealt with. Like I had I had guys, you know, in March and April that were like front squatting their wives and you know, we were, <laughs> we were, we were tra- training them with backpacks only um, because, you know, A, you know, guys didn't have anything, but B, even if you wanted to get something, all these equipment suppliers were, I mean, you couldn't buy a kettlebell on the planet. No, and oh my April. gosh. Like, yeah. Everything's got cleaned up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's definitely an important consideration. You know, the things I would tell you is it, it actually is kind of as much as it's been a terrible time, like from a, from an exercise standpoint, I think it's actually been cool to see people kind of rediscover what they like. We saw more mm-hmm. people kind of working out outside and get some fresh air and some sunshine, some of that stuff. Um, you know, I, I think, I think we, what we lost, we gained in other ways. So I, I would say like, it, you know, as, as, as we kind of wrap up, hopefully soon, this craziness in the world, like take stock of the things you really enjoyed. Like I know for me, like two exercise sessions outside a week, no matter what. And then that might just be like me taking the rolling machine in our garage and wheeling out in the driveway for, you know, 20 minutes and getting after it in the sunshine or going up the street and sprinting at a park or something like that. Those are, those are things that for me will be mainstays forever. You know, find walks with it, with my wife and our daughters. Like those are things that I think are important. But um, the thing you have to remember is re- with resistance training, like your body weight is resistance um, yes. if you use it correctly. And it doesn't take crazy amount of, of equipment necessarily. You know, obviously if you're trying to be a competitive power lifter, you're going to need a barbell, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and even being a professional athlete, you need some external loading, you need med balls to throw and stuff, but you'd be shocked at how many things around the house we had guys utilizing in this time period, whether it was loading up a backpack, lifting cases of water bottles, um, you know, we had guys filling up coolers, um, then doing step ups on the cooler. Like it was, it was a crazy time, but people made it work. So, um, that's what I'll tell you is, you, you know, you spend some time on YouTube, you spend some time on Instagram and you're actually going to come up with some pretty good stuff. There's some pretty good body weight programs out there. Um, but the thing I, I always come back to is working out by yourself at home. Like it works for a while. It, 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 it doesn't work for a lifetime for right. a lot of people mm-hmm. because they don't have that, that social element we talked about. So I, I do think it's important that, you know, as soon as the world allows that we, we get to act to, to some semblance of normalcy yeah. with, with some of the fitness facilities we have. We had Rich Ronin on uh, a little while back and yeah. I was, uh, you know, you kind of alluded to it that CrossFit is kind of like the extreme and, you know, there's a lot mm-hmm. of bad, uh, you know, a lot of bad thoughts around it just because, you know, a lot of people get hurt and don't know what they're doing yeah. and, and it's that cult-ish following. But talking to Rich, he really, I mean, changed my perspective on it because the community aspect, the accountability, all those things you're talking about and the importance as we normalize here and we can get back out, the importance of that, whether it's CrossFit, whether it's, you know, a Pilates deal, whether it's uh, Orange Theory, whether whatever it is, right, is the yeah. importance of community. Because I agree the sustainability yeah. of working out by yourself is hard. Yeah, we, we've yeah. talked about it before. Struggling with other people just builds you so much closer <laughs> yeah, together. Mm-hmm. There's, yeah. It's so important to have a common goal and struggle with other people. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's, we talk about embrace the suck, but yeah. for reason, there's yeah. a, there's a hashtag CSP family at both our facilities. Like that's, that's something that we've always tried to nurture is, Hey, we don't just train you. We train your family. 
You know, I want to be here as a resource. You know, if you're a, a baseball player who moves your, you know, across the country, I want I want you to know your wife can work out at the facility too. And, mm-hmm. you know, like I can't tell you how many times, like we've had a player's wife get pregnant and we've, you know, given them advice about like what my wife did for lifting mm-hmm. while she was mm-hmm. pregnant with twins and, you know, answer those questions. You just want to be a resource to people and find ways to over deliver. And you know, I think that's been a big part of our success as a company is always trying to find a way to, to treat people like they're part of a family and, and try to over deliver in those contexts. Yeah. Sounds like the influence from your mom right there. That's awesome. There you go. That's as, as we wrap up here, I mean, this has been, this has been so helpful and so awesome. Uh, we like to ask a question at the end to all of our guests and, and we'll ask you here in a second, but before we get to that, uh, I want to talk a little bit about where people can find you. Uh, you yeah. are so generous with your knowledge. I mean, you've literally written thousands of articles that are out there. <laughs> where can people find you, your website, yeah. your social media, where can people yeah. find that information? For sure. So, uh, Twitter and Instagram are both, uh, at Eric Cressy, uh, ericcressy.com is the website where you can find daily blogs, uh, free newsletter. Um, we'll also get a podcast, which, which delves into the baseball world pretty heavily, but we also touch, um, you know, on, you know, sports science and college coaches and all kinds of different stuff, sleep specialists, you name it. So, um, that's been a cool thing to kind of do. Um, so that's, that's elite baseball podcast.com. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those are the kind of the big heavy hitters. Yeah. Just go Google Eric Cressy. And if you're a young that's athlete, right. I mean, yeah. this guy is, this is your go-to source yeah. right here. Yeah. Eric is awesome. So here's the final question that we like yeah. to ask everybody. So you can go back to any point in your life and tell yourself one thing. Doesn't necessarily mean you change anything, but tell yourself one thing. Where do you go and what do you tell yourself? Um, I probably go back to my early teenage years and I, I start having the conversation about nutrition. Um, just to, to, I don't know if there's a specific thing I tell myself, but I try to, I try to provide some mentorship in terms of understanding food as fuel for your body and not just calories, you know, and understanding what it actually can do for you and how it can set you up for success, um, both in terms of, of athletic performance, maybe as the means of delivering the message, but also, you know, quality of life and you know, what you do academically and all that stuff. I, I wish not just for me that I wish all young athletes would really appreciate mm-hmm. that. Cause it would have been, it would have changed my life in a lot of ways. Probably would have saved my parents a lot of sleepless nights while I was yeah. sick. Um, yeah. and so that, that's yeah. probably what I would have done. Yeah. Awesome. And that is awesome. Hey, Eric, we really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule. We know you're busy, man. And we know that everyone's out there requesting you and and want you on their podcast or or radio shows. But we really appreciate what you, uh, you know, the conversation we had today. A lot of great information. We want to have you back on at some point. I'm sure I'll, you know, I'll, I'll drill you down with the, all my 19 year old questions. You're going to send <laughs> yeah. Jaden out to like Florida to, to see him? Heck yeah. Hey, like Michael Irvin said, hey, out. pack your bags, son. You're going to Florida. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> come We're on, going. Man. We got some NFL guys around. You can come last time. We still got. <laughs> but we really appreciate your time. Thanks again. For no sweat. Thanks, Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Thanks Eric. Appreciate you.